You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. You are the King of the ages. Help us to know that. Help us to trust that. So as we are here, we are yielded and waiting, and we pray that you would search us and know us, that you would make us into the people that you want us to be for our own joy and for your infinite and eternal glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It is good to be here with all of you. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. My oldest son, Owen, and I just rolled in from the airport. We landed at 347. Luckily, there were no uh, flight delays there. We spent a great weekend together in Austin, culminating in a last-second loss of the Texas Longhorns. But it was a fun time. I've decided that when one of my kids reaches the fourth grade, I'm going to take them on a Texas Longhorn weekend. My wife has rightfully been bagging on me that this is a decision that has come in a season in which Texas is somewhat good. And I'm like, yeah, that's about right. It's just an excuse for me to go to four Longhorn games over the next seven or eight years. Anyway, I am glad to be here back with you and to be back in this letter of 1 Timothy, to be back uh, to get to this paragraph in 1 Timothy. If you are new joining with us, we are going through this short letter that Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy as he is pastoring this young church in Ephesus. This is one of my favorite paragraphs, not just in this letter, but in the entire Bible. And it's one of the clearest distillations of what God has done for humanity in Christ. So let's get into it. We'll we'll think through this paragraph tonight in three sections. The badness of the bad news, the goodness of the good news, and then a passionate response. So let's get into the badness of the bad news, right into it. Last week we saw Paul reflect a bit on the goodness of the law. It's a strange thing for us to think through that the law is good, but how Paul explains that its one purpose is to, like a mirror, show us our overwhelming need, to show us our failure to obey God, to show us our, how we have not lived into God's expectations for our lives together with him. And we ended last week in verse 11, where Paul says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We thought quite a bit about the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, but I didn't really say much about that last phrase, which where Paul says, with which I have been entrusted. But that phrase is the hinge on which now we get to our paragraph tonight. He's already said in verse 1 
that his apostleship, his office, his sent oneness, comes from the command of our God and Savior, of Christ our hope. He's saying God has commanded him. He has sent him as an apostle. And there in verse 11, he says that the gospel has been entrusted to him. He's like the courier, the messenger. He's the deliverer. It's his job and responsibility to make sure that the package is delivered in its original beauty. So just like when you receive a package from a friend or a family member, you recognize that it's a package from your cousin. It's not like a package given to you by some random guy in brown shorts and a brown shirt. You don't like send a thank you note to the UPS guy after he drops off this package. It's from your cousin. But your cousin did entrust the package with the UPS guy to make sure that he delivered it to you. So Paul, seeing himself perhaps in a brown socks and brown shorts uniform, is really concerned about the package that he's dropped off in Ephesus. The metaphor is quickly breaking down because once the UPS guy drops off the package, he doesn't care what you do with it, right? Uh, but Paul is distraught because the package is being misused. It's like he's delivered something that is amazingly useful, amazingly beneficial, like a really wonderful water hose for the city of Ephesus or something. It's like he's delivered it so that the city might benefit, might be beautified, might flourish because of this dropped off package. But some folks have gotten their hands on this hose and now they're just going around to the people of Ephesus and beating them with the hose, perhaps even hanging them with the hose and he can't handle it. Go get the hose back, Timothy. I think that's in there somewhere uh, in 1 Timothy 1. Go get the hose back. God has entrusted me with this tool, not only to deliver it, but unlike the UPS man, to make sure that it is being properly used, that your city, that the church and your city and then the world might flourish because of the package, because of the gospel. But thinking about his being entrusted as an apostle, thinking about the, the gift that he has been given, his responsibility as the courier, this causes him to stop. And it causes him not to stop in like arrogance and giving like domineering commands that have to be submitted to, that must be obeyed, Timothy or you Ephesians. Since God has made me an apostle, now I just get to willy-nilly make up what I think is best for you. No, thinking through the gospel, thinking of his being entrusted as an apostle floors him. Causes him to stop and think in humbled personal reflection. So that he writes in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Now many of us are well acquainted with Paul's story, but for those of you who are new to the Bible... Paul was, before he became this Christian evangelist, this church planter, an apostle, he was a devout and religious Jew. He was a, a Pharisee. The Pharisees saw their Jewish countrymen becoming more and more like the Greek world around them. The Pharisees were ultra concerned that their countrymen, their Jewish countrymen, were not operating, not living their lives in right worship of God. They were not living their lives rightly before God. This is not a bad motivation, right? They want to protect the right life and worship of God's people. And so when huge amounts of Jews start saying that there's this Galilean carpenter, 
who is the promised one of God, the anointed son of David, the conquering king of Israel. And that this Jesus is that man, the Messiah. It's preposterous. He was killed by the Romans. He certainly did not lead us out from the hand of Rome. Rome conquered him. He did not conquer Rome. But even worse, that they're saying, not just that this killed man was the Messiah, but that he's actually God. Blasphemy, the Pharisees thought. And so Paul and others like him thought that they must stop this blasphemy of God's name and they must restore right worship to God. So perhaps thinking of, of himself like Moses who came down from the mountain and saw all of his countrymen worshiping this golden calf, Paul was incensed. They must be stopped. God's glory is at stake here. He would later say in Acts 26, he said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Elsewhere in the book of Acts, we read that Saul, which was his name at the time, was breathing in threats and in murder. One old commentator says, threatening and slaughter had become the very breath which Saul breathed, like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle. It's like his entire life, he would wake up and just sniff the blood of Christians and how he might find them and kill them to protect the honor and glory of God. Saul saw to, Saul saw to it that Stephen was stoned, executed in 7 and 8, in Acts 7 and 8, but but then God. Christ came and interrupted his life in Acts 9. After he had cleared out and murdered all of the Christians in Jerusalem, he was on the road to a city called Damascus, and the risen Jesus appeared before him and asked him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm alive. He showed himself to Saul. He said, I'm the Messiah. I am God's anointed one. And I've come to fight an enemy far worse and far older than Rome or Egypt. And I've come to deliver you from a slavery that is far worse and far older than Rome or Egypt. And I've come to deliver you to a land that is far better and far older. A land full of freedom and of joy and of living with God himself. Far better than some tiny strip of land on the Mediterranean that you have hoped in. And I'm not only the sent one by God, but I am God. I'm the second person of the triune God. Now changing the course of your life forever. Saul was blinded by the glory of God, the glory of Christ, whom he says in Galatians 2, of Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. Which is just an incredibly startling thing for a Pharisee to say, right? Who actually, a Pharisee who actually never met or saw Jesus while he was alive in his earthly ministry. For this man to say, when he died in Jerusalem on a Roman cross, that was for me. That's a weird thing for him to say. And for him to say, who died for me and who loves me. 
not just in the past tense. It wasn't like his going to death on the cross was a past act of love, but that even now he presently loves me. That's a weird thing for this man to say. And I can't think of another explanation for him to say something like that other than the formerly dead and disgraced carpenter teacher from Galilee actually appeared to Saul that day, actually appeared to him in resurrected glory and showed himself to be the Messiah and just radically changing the course of Saul's life forever. As a result of this, Saul not only stops persecuting Christians, but he becomes one. He stops observing the kosher laws, and his entire life is flipped over. And so when Paul writes in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, we know that he can't mean that he was somehow faithfully worthy of being appointed to Jesus' service. The rest of the paragraph will say the exact opposite, right? It wasn't that he was doing something that Jesus found admirably worthy. He was an insolent opponent. Rather, that Jesus has given him strength to be faithful, or more literally, to be trustworthy with the gospel as it is entrusted to him. Calvin paraphrases this verse to say, paraphrasing Paul, I should have nothing that might be fit for this office the office of being an apostle, which is to bear the gospel, but all my might, all my worthiness comes from mere grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is just unbelievable, considering who he was, what he was doing, thinking that Christians were blasphemers, thinking that they were opponents of God. But then on the Damascus Road, the blinding glory of Jesus comes to him as the mirror showing him that who he thought were the monsters, the Christians, is actually him. He is the monster. He's the one that is opposed to God, not them. And can you imagine the terror that Saul must have felt that day on that road, blinded by the glory of God, hearing Jesus accuse you of being against him, like he must have been expecting death at any second. Saul, why are you persecuting me? To be confronted with the glory of God and be confronted that you are against him, terror. But it's not just because he was killing Christians that he must have felt terror. Later, Paul will argue in Romans 3 and 4 and 5 that left to ourselves, all of us are in the same boat. Opposed to God. All of our lives lived in insolence, in in opposition, in rebellion against God. We might not be killing Christians but that we are actively living our lives against his kingdom. First, is trying to make sure that his kingdom is not made known in our own lives, but then stopping it even from being made known in the world. We want nothing to do with him. We are his enemies and we stand condemned. The bad news is really, really bad. Far worse, perhaps, than we could have imagined. Now, of course, we already know what Jesus did with Saul. He didn't condemn him. But now this gets us to the extraordinary, mind-blowing goodness of the good news. Paul will continue on to say in verse 13, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in belief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason 
that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. However deep Saul's rebellion and hatred of Christ, however deep it ran, the mercy and love of Christ plunged deeper to grab him out and to pull him up, to bring him from opposition to friendship, from death to life, from condemnation to freedom, from Saul to Paul, from the old man to the new man. And when he says that he had received mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief, he's not arguing that as long as you don't know that you're sinning, that you won't be held accountable for it. No, he's just saying that even though his life was opposed to God, he didn't necessarily want it to be. When when he was confronted with the reality and glory of the crucified and resurrected Christ, he now wanted his life to be about Christ. That he might say, as we sang earlier, all I have is Christ, and now Jesus is my life. Jesus had become the most consuming thing, not just in his vision, blinding him that day on that road, but Jesus had permanently now given him eyes to see, filled his vision with his glory for the rest of his life. So he wasn't confronted that day and then heard the news that Jesus was actually alive and that he was Messiah and then still lived his life without change. When he was confronted with the reality of who Jesus was, his whole life is flipped, permanently changed. And so when Saul, in humility, acknowledges his sin and opposition to Christ and repentance and turning from Jesus now to Jesus, Verse 14 can be true of him, that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When he recognizes who he is in front of Jesus, turns from being against him to now to him, Jesus' life just, or his grace just overflows, just pours over him. Like, have you ever been to Niagara Falls, David, Rita, y'all were just there recently? I've never been there, but I've seen Jim and Pam's wedding on the office, so I I feel like I've been there. Uh, Not really. I'm sure there's a sense in which pictures and video can, like, never do justice to being there. Being there and seeing 680,000 gallons per second flowing over this giant horseshoe. It's been that way for thousands of years, and likely... Unless the Lord tarries, we'll be there for thousands more. You you can like plan a vacation to Niagara Falls next month or next year or 10 years from now and expect it to look that way. Might be a little further back because of erosion, but it's still going to be there. All of the North American streams and rivers that empty into the Great Lakes that then empty into the Niagara River are still just going to keep flowing over it. The lakes and the river and the water will not run out. And Paul says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. It initially came in extraordinary power, but it will also not run out. There is more to come, and it is not going to empty itself. Martin Luther says, just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up 10 worlds, just as 100,000 lights might be lit from one light and not detract from it, right? You got a match? You can keep lighting as many lights as you want. This match is not going to go out. Well, maybe not a match. How about a candle? That's better. 
Just as a learned man is able to make a thousand others learned, and the more he gives, the more he has, so is Christ our Lord, an infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world all angels, yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over, full of grace. Jesus appeared to Saul showing him that he was indeed alive, confronting Saul's expectations for who the Messiah would be and what he would do, but then he didn't condemn him. He transformed him by the overwhelmingness of his grace, by Paul not getting what he deserved in his mercy and being transformed by his love and his grace, by his now being not just a friend of God, but a son, by no longer having to keep a perfect record of law-keeping and ritual cleansing because Jesus had cleansed him finally and fully, allowing him now to walk in in love and in freedom. Because here's the reality that Paul wants Timothy, that Paul wants the Ephesian elders, that Paul wants the Ephesian church, and for us to fully embrace. Verse 15, that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Like we said last week, Paul isn't just like sitting in his second story church office, like watching people walk by on the street and just looking at them in disgust, shaking his finger at all the sinners out there. No, he sees himself as the foremost, the first and primary the worst sinner that he knows. And so like last week, if Jesus can and desires to save the worst sinner in the world, then why in the world would we think that we are too sinful for Christ? Hear me again. The love and the mercy, the grace of Christ can reach far deeper than anything that you have done, that anything has been done against you. To say or think that there is anything in your life that Jesus isn't able to save from, that he isn't able to transform, to redeem, is just putting far too much weight and importance on our not insignificant but really small lives. To say that the God of the universe who spoke the universe into existence by a word can't do something with our sin? Come on. Come tonight to the overwhelming power, the enveloping love and grace of Christ. Now, is Paul saying that he's written a record of every human being? He's like, watch the video footage of every human being that's alive today. He's scoured through records, and then he's looked at his own life, and he said, yep, I'm the worst. I beat everybody. No, he's, he's just infinitely more aware of his own sin. He can see external actions of other people out there, but he can see internal motives, twisted and dark motives that cause him to live and to act and to think and desire the way that he does. And notice that he's still speaking in present tense. He doesn't say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I was the foremost, He's not saying that I was the foremost sinner when I was killing Christians. He's saying, I am. 
of whom I am the foremost. At this point in Paul's life, it's very possible that we could have like a 24-hour surveillance camera on him, seeing every second of his waking hours, and perhaps not even be able to point out any external sin. Possible. He was likely living a very morally exemplary life at this point, walking in the knowledge of Christ for as many years as he had, but in knowing himself, in knowing that he still desires things that he shouldn't, perhaps in pride, still privately wanting to make a name for himself, to be well-known in the Mediterranean world, perhaps understanding that his minimal but ongoing, still-going anxiety and fear really is just distrust in God's character, distrust in God's promises. He knows that the fountain of the grace of the gospel is not something that you graduate from, that you needed one time in your life, but then you just kind of, now you move, on, you move into some real deep theology and you, you leave the gospel behind. No, the more you draw from the well, the more you understand your need, that you need it more and more and more and more. And isn't that true? Sometimes we, because of some, some big sins in our life, our, our vision is clouded to like the millions of smaller sins in our lives that we aren't even aware of. Or perhaps even the, the bad and selfish motives that we have for doing even good things. If we had a camera on our lives, perhaps we could uh, see many of us doing wonderfully great things. But that camera can't show the twistedness of our heart and the motive for which we're doing these things. It's when we begin to grow in this way that we see ourselves as we really are, far worse than we could have ever imagined, that we couldn't possibly think of ourselves when we see ourselves and our, the, the, the sin that we thought wasn't quite so bad when we first coming to Christ, perhaps we thought we just had some bad habits that we needed to clean up, stop making a few of these bad decisions, but then the more we are confronted with God's glory and his holiness, now we're seeing Man, there's so much of my life that I wasn't even aware of that is opposed to him. So when we come to that knowledge that we can't possibly think of ourselves as somehow morally superior or more worthy of receiving grace than others. Have you been tempted toward thinking yourself, thinking of yourself as somehow better, as seeing others as sinners as seeing others as perhaps the most sinful person that you know. When you think of the really bad people of the world, who are the first people that you think of? Maybe individuals, a face comes to your mind, or perhaps a category of people come to your mind. Perhaps a category of people like the folks that Paul, Paul listed in verses 9 and 10. Perhaps you think of, when you think of bad people, like sinners, you think of murderers, those who are violent, who are dishonoring to authority the sexually immoral, those who are tempted toward or actively indulging in homosexual behavior. Maybe in this toxic political climate, you think of, when you think of bad people, you think of someone who would dare vote for someone in an opposing political party. But if 1 Timothy 1.15 becomes really true in our hearts, that we can agree with Paul, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners like me, of whom I am the foremost. As one writer says, a few conclusions must be true of us, that I am a sinner like they are sinners. 
categorically the same. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that my salvation did not come from being better than them, but my salvation came from the finished work of Christ. And because I know me better than I know them, it is true, acknowledged or not, that I am the worst sinner that I know. I do know myself more than I know anyone else. And I certainly can't see others' hearts like I can see my own. I am the worst sinner that I know. Because seriously, how many times this week did you just, would you rather have had 30 more minutes of sleep rather than spending some time reading the Bible or in prayer? How many times have you gotten frustrated with your spouse or with your kids or with a roommate? Maybe even muttered a silent curse upon them. How many times have you wasted your employer's time in fruitless internet or social media consumption? How many times have you gotten angry at others on social media? How many times have you gotten angry at others on the highway? How many times have you clicked where you shouldn't have clicked or fantasized about another person that God has created and loves? How many times this week have you begrudged God for putting you in a particular stage in life? For wanting a different job? For wishing you had a job? And because you don't, being angry at God. Wishing you had a spouse or a different spouse. Wishing you had kids or different kids. Wishing you had a healthier or a different body and begrudging God because of where you are now? How many times have you grown discontent and angry with folding laundry or cleaning the house? How many times have you procrastinated and wasted so much time that you just had to mail it in on a school project or a work presentation? How many times have you thought, I would much rather stay home tonight than going to my gospel community? How many times have you stayed home? Because just loving and serving other people is kind of exhausting sometimes. How many times have you been tempted toward thinking that that drink or that joint or that some other drug might finally give you the peace that you need? How many times have you said something or done something just so that others will notice you or think more highly of you? Just in this last week or perhaps in the last 24 hours? How many times have you had the opportunity to talk about Jesus and what he's done in your life, but in fear you kept quiet? How many times have you been tempted toward exchanging the right worship of God for the wrong worship of a million other gods? How many times? The list is a mile long. It is dirty and trampled on, and it is heavy. And yet, even though God will transform his people, he's going to make our good works conspicuous to an unbelieving world. We've got the rest of this letter to keep thinking through that. And in fact, Paul says that Jesus did all of this in his life so that Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Nevertheless, for all of us tonight, every single one of us who is bringing a mile-long list of failure, of weakness, of idolatry, of opposition toward God. And it is trampled upon, and it is dirty, and it is heavy. Jesus stands in front of you saying, come, welcome, justified, 
mine. The trampled upon, muddy and dirty list. Carry it no more. I have lived and died so that I can carry it. Mason Banning was dead. Now he's alive through what Jesus has done. Seth Seth Richardson was lost, but now Jesus has found him. Kristen Van Cleve, she was blind, but now sees. For anyone who has come to Christ and is now following him, was lost and condemned, but now is able to live in freedom because of the cross of his grace. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Have you thought about that? That that line is kind of strange when we sing that. What kind of love is it that could not remember, that could choose to not remember all of the wrongs that we have done, especially an omniscient, all-knowing one, and yet he counts not their sum? Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, a mile long. But his mercy is more. And then what's the chorus of that song that we sing? Because our sins, they are many, and his mercy is more, what is the response? Praise the Lord. Which is following the same model and pattern that Paul gives us here in 1 Timothy 1 as well. Reflecting on the goodness of the good news, which came after the badness of the bad news. Now he's just going to flow into this like whirlwind of praise. And he can't contain himself with a passionate response. He says in verse 17, To the king of the ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Like when, I, when I say worship, when you just hear or read the word worship. What is it that you think of? Like guitars and smoke machines, Matt Jones, Hillsong. Worship is anything that we do when we think of something as worthy, as worthwhile. When we think it's worthy of my time, it's worthy of my attention, my energy and desire, we are worshiping. So if that's true, then worship isn't just something that we do when we sing four or five songs once a week on a Sunday night. And it's not just something that we do in a particularly Christian way. We worship all kinds of things that are not God. We are constantly worshiping. We are worshiping things other than God all day, every day. One writer says, at this very moment, and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone at any moment. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. So did you hear that? He said, at this moment, every single moment, every single person throughout the world is worshiping, bowing down to something or someone. In fact, many have observed that all sin is misplaced, misplaced worship. Think about it. Like selfishness is the worship of the self, of possessions. Anger and pride is the worship of the self and the rights that you demand to be owed. Lust is the worship of the image of someone else's body. Anxiety is the worship of a perfectly ideal situation that is not reality. So if we are constantly worshiping something, some person, some ideal that we think is worthy, then Christian worship is just a reorienting of our hearts towards the thing that is actually worthy. This can be done through songs, but it should actually be done in all of life, wherever we are. And so 
Paul sat down to write this letter to his boy Timothy, and he couldn't help himself but just get like 17 sentences or so in. Like he's just reflecting on, he's, tr- he's trying to give him some commands. He's trying to tell Timothy, hey, stop this false teaching that's going on in your city. And he's just, and he, it's like 90 seconds. And then he's just like whirlwind of like who God is and what he's done. Like, I mean, can you believe it? He seems to be saying the, the eternal God, the one who has always been, the immortal God, the one who will always be, the invisible God, the one who is not made by human hands nor bound by human confines, the only God, that one, is the one who knows my name, who knows my mile-long record of opposition against him, and yet loves me, gave his life for me, knows the amount of hairs on my head, and now has given me a job to share his glory on this earth. And I mean, he can't even help himself but to respond in an overwhelmed, uncontainable joy. Yesterday when Texas scored a touchdown, 103,000 people went berserk. Like, no one had to say, all right, it's time to like raise up your hands and yell. Like, every, like, when they, when Texas scores with two minutes left to take the lead, I'm picking up my kid and, like, throwing him in the air. People that he's known for, like, three hours are high-fiving him. People are going crazy. You don't have to be taught to respond when there's something joyful going on. Of course, that joy was snuffed out by a last-second play. But (laughs) the difference of Christian joy of Christian worship, of responding to the drama that God has played out and acted upon in the gospel still continues despite changing circumstances. Some worship won't be as like hand-raising, exuberant, over-the-top joy like a touchdown celebration or Paul's exclamation here in verse 17. But his model of passionate worship can still translate to wherever you are today. Can still translate to the persecuted church all over the globe. Whether in times of happy praise or in times of pain. In times of struggle, of questioning, of doubt, and of loss. If you're a Christian, the knowledge that God has done away with your greatest enemy. Your sin. Your opposition against him, knowing that he is more committed to your eternal joy than you are. That comes as a steadying anchor in the midst of shifting circumstances, because despite any circumstance, verse 17 is true. And not just like in an encyclopedia, like uh, just a statement of facts, some, some like attributes of who God is that have no Uh, real playing out in your life, but in the life-changing reality that Jesus is the king of the ages. He is at the helm of the cosmos and of your small life. That he is the king of Moses and of Paul and of you and of me. That he is immortal and invisible to us now, but he will not always be. That he has created you and he knows you. That he is the only God and despite our daily worship of countless other gods, the fountain of his grace is limitless. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Woo!
Like, we should be, like, tossing our kids in the air, high-fiving everybody. This is the most mind-blowing, life-changing reality in existence, that Jesus is alive. And he has come to confront not just, you might not have a eye-sight-blinding experience like Saul did on that road, but all of us, especially when you are hearing and reading and knowing of who Jesus is, now all of us have been confronted with the reality that he is not only alive, but he, that he is the Christ, that he is God. What will we do with this news? How will it shape us and transform us? How will it cause us to respond in our own lives? That we might say, hallelujah, all I have in this life is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. My life is no longer mine any longer, but praise God that Jesus' life is mine. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do recognize you as the king of the ages, that you are immortal and invisible. And though we don't see you now, we love you. But Lord Jesus, how much more when we do see you. Help us to be faithful. Help us as we wait for your return to be a church that loves you more and loves ourselves less. To love our neighbor more and ourselves less. Cause us to see you for who you are and see ourselves as who we are and help us to be just overwhelmed and floored in humility by your love and your grace. Help us to be a faithful church. We pray that our good works might be conspicuous to an unbelieving world around us. And we pray that you might receive glory and honor forever and ever as more and more and more in our uh, places of work, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and to the ends of the wor world come to trust you and acknowledge you as king of the cosmos. To you be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.